Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our Passover prep learning series. I'm going to talk a little bit, but, but I really want to find out what your questions are and try to respond to them. I mean, that's really what uh, the point of this all is, right, after all. But let me give you at least some background information and um, and we'll go from there. So the first thing is that um, this holiday is really meaningful, but it also um, draws out whatever anal compulsive tendencies you have. Uh, right? It's uh, I, I remember in Ron Wilson's book on, on Passover Seder, he, he was quoting Sandy Goodluck, who says that right after Purim, I start making lists and hyperventilating, <laughs> um, um, which is, you know, and, and I, and frankly, in our house, literally the day after Purim, Marlon starts making Pesach and there's less and less of the kitchen that I get to use. And all of a sudden, all of this comes is on our counter and we've got to get rid of it, you know, <laughs> sooner rather than later. I mean, it, you know, you know the drill. Um, so, I mean, you know, all of that is very respectful of the holiday and all of that. But, I mean, I, I really do want to say from the very beginning um, that you shouldn't let some of the, these details that we're going to be talking about tonight get in the way of the broad picture. The broad picture is really um, that this is the central story of our tradition, um, Exodus and Sinai. And it has a lot of meanings for us that are <clears throat> that that really distinguish us from other traditions. I mean. You know, if you were to, for example, to compare the central story of Christianity, the passion and resurrection of Jesus, um, to our story, um, it's, it, it has many, many, very, many uh, distinctions. As a matter of fact, former student of mine, Michael Goldberg, later after he finished rabbinical school, went to, did a doctorate at Graduate Theological Union in Narrative Theology. And ultimately, he wrote a book called um, the Passion Resurrection, Exodus Sinai and the Passion Resurrection, colon, Jews and Christians getting their story straight, right? And what he did in that book was compare the vision of who we are, um, if you are a Jew, as to who you are, as to who you are, if you are a Christian, right? And, and those, the, the stories tell a lot about what that is. I mean, among other things, um, we don't leave Egypt as individuals. We leave Egypt as a community. Right. Very much different from our American side of our identity. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Um, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I, as an American, I'm an individual with rights. But as a Jew, I leave Egypt with a community. And when I get to Sinai, I don't get a single right. I get 613 commandments. Right. When I, I do a lot of interfaith work and I say to, to the Christians, this is the beginning of Jewish guilt. Right. But the Catholics tell me, you know, nothing about guilt. We have that cornered. <laughs> OK, you're welcome to it. Um, right. And then, you know, and then the story continues on the trek to the promised land. And and so what is that and how do we how do we con- how do we contribute to life uh, in order to try to make this life a better one for everybody? Right. That's that's all that's all involved in that central story of ours that Passover celebrates. So it is a really important holiday just on a theological level, um, let alone for the fact that it brings together family and community. Um, and it gets us to, um, you know, to talk a lot about the story. Um, uh, and as you may know, I, I've taught uh, a course on Jewish law at the law school in UCLA for many years. And uh, one of my students said to me that, Jewish students said that, 
he and some friends of his had invited some of their non-Jewish friends to their Passover Seder. Um, and at the end of the Seder, one of the non-Jews said to him, now I understand why Jews are so good at the Socratic method. It's embedded in your religion, right? In other words, you know, the, the, the idea to ask questions and to challenge things and that kind of thing, right? I mean, um, so, I mean, it really is very central, both in its meaning and in its mode to, to who we are as Jews. Um, and I think that that's really what, what we need to do and certainly what we need to focus on. And certainly um, the, the details of the, of the observance, which we'll talk about tonight, um, hopefully we'll not get in the way of that, but we'll rather augment that um, and, and, and make it you know, possible for you to do it in a very traditional way, but at the same time, and thereby connect with the story and the way that Jews have celebrated the story for generations. I mean, that's part of what the meaning of Passover is as well. Um, but the, but it won't blind you to uh, the, the, the greater meanings of it. And it certainly should not be, and let me just say it straight out of the beginning, uh, it certainly should not be the excuse to look down on other Jews who do it differently. Um, even if those other Jews are members of your family. Um, so this should not be the, the, the rules of, of Passover uh, and eating and all of that should not be the excuse um, to to create bad relationships and families and, and friendships. Um, so, I mean, I think that also really needs to be, um, yeah, it really needs to be emphasized at the very beginning, especially as I'm about to talk about a lot of the details of, the, you know, of making Passover. Um, the, on Passover, we're not allowed, among other things, to eat chametz. So what is chametz? Um, chametz is one of the five grains, um, that did in ancient times grow in Israel and still does, namely wheat, barley, um, oats, spelt, and rye. Um, it's those five grains that constitutes chametz. And for, in regard to those five grains, there are um, three different commandments in the Torah. Um, one is that you may not eat them on Passover, except under very specific circumstances. And we'll get to that. That's matzah, after all, usually comes from meat or something like uh, from wheat, I mean. And, and so clearly we do eat uh, wheat on Passover, but under very specific circumstances, namely that it's not leavened and it doesn't rise. Um, so, um, those, but those five grains can only be eaten under these very specific circumstances of not having any leaven with them. Um, so on the one hand, so number one, we're not allowed to eat that, eat chametz. Number two, um, so bal tochal is the, is the Hebrew term for it. You may not eat it. Bal yeh it may not be seen in your household. Right, um, which will lead to some of the practices that we have, and body might say it might not be found in your house, right? So those are the three basic rules um, in regard to chametz. So what does that mean? Well, that means among other things um, that whatever chametz you have in your house, um, if you can, you should eat it or give it away to the poor uh, between Purim and Passover. Um, so that, you know, so that the food doesn't go to waste. And it's a, um, and again, I mean, it's uh, some of it, you will, maybe all of it, depending on how, how much you have, um, you will eat, but you just need to, 
get it out of the pantry and put it on the counter so you know what it is you've got to get rid of before then. Um, you know, in our house, uh, already starting last, last Shabbat, uh, we have this barley soup and we're going to have, <laughs> right? I mean, it's going to be, what can I tell you? It's going to be a lot of carbs over the next four weeks. Um, the, um, <coughs> the, um, so that's part of it. And then another part of it is, of course, the spring cleaning that, that is, that is, um, not just in our tradition, it's in a lot of other traditions, there's spring cleaning as well, but that's also part of it because it's not supposed to be found in your house or seen, right? Um, and then the other, the other, uh, the ultimate way of getting rid of it is by selling it. And this, this really came into, um, into Jewish law for two reasons of selling your, your chametz to a Gentile. Um, this came into, uh, into Jewish law for two reasons. One was that, um, the, uh, many Jews, because when Christians, when, when Jews were living in Christian societies in particular, um, Jews were not allowed to do what was honorific work, that is work on the land. And so they had to be in business. They were dealing with money, which was Christians concerned to, uh, thought to be dirty. Um, but that meant that you had a lot of Jewish businesses uh, that were things like grocery stores, liquor stores, and so on, that had a whole store of this stuff, right, that that the owners could certainly not sell off um, within a month after Purim. Um, so there needed to be a way in which uh, the store owners could um, maintain their, their supply, but not, uh, not sell it on, on Passover, but be able after Passover to uh, reclaim it. So that was the major reason in the Middle Ages for developing this notion of mechirat chametz, of selling your chametz. But the other reason um, is that uh, is because of a peculiarity in Jewish law, which is that um, throughout the rest of the year, uh, the classical example is if uh, a drop of milk by accident gets into a meat soup, if it is less than one sixtieth of the volume. Of the, of the soup, it is null and void. The, the, the term is batel bashishin. It is voided and as one part in 60. Right? But chametz on Passover is a, is a sur b'chalshavim. It's a forbidden under, uh, in any amount. So that's part of the reason for the spring cleaning stuff, right? In other words, the idea is to try to get, uh, and get rid of as much of it as you can find. I mean, you know, in the, depending upon what stage in life you're in, you know, if you have small kids, it's inevitable that there's going to be crumbs all over the place. Um, or if you have grandchildren come around, there it's inevitable that there are going to be crumbs all over the place. And even without that, um, the you know, even we're just talking about adults in the house, the uh, there's a need to to try to clean that out. But even with that, you're going to miss something. I mean, we're all human, and um, and there will be crumbs, you know, in the depths of your 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 couch or something, whatever it is. Um, and so you sell your chametz as a way of making sure that it's not literally is not it's not your chametz is not found in your house, even if you can't see it. Your, that your chametz is not found in your house; it belongs to somebody else, to a non-Jew during the time of Passover. So that's the other reason for this this custom of mechirat chametz. Um, now um, it can be done online. Um, and I mean, it used to be that you would come to the synagogue and sell it to the rabbi who in turn would sell it to usually the non-Jewish custodian. Um, and that was done at Betham for 
we've been members since 71 and been done for decades, right? But now, um, you, you can do this all online. And, um, in the chat, you will find the rabbinical assembly, um, the, the rabbinical assembly, um, guide for Passover that I'm going to refer to several times tonight. Um, but also if you, I'm sure Rabbi Clickwell is going to send this out a couple of weeks before Passover. Uh, he and a lot of Bethlehem people are in, in the South now on their trip. Um, but I would imagine that this coming week, cause they're still in the South, but, uh, next week you'll, you'll get an email saying, if you want to sell your chametz, then, then just fill out this form online, um, which effectively sells it, um, to a rabbi, uh, in the rabbinical assembly, uh, and who will then sell it before Passover to a non-Jew. And then after Passover, you have to, um, you, know, you may want to wait for about a half an hour just to make sure that the, the, the rabbi there had, a, had time to reclaim it from the non-Jew. Um, so that when you're eating after Pat, you're eating your, whatever chametz you stored away, uh, at, during Passover. If you're eating it after Passover, you're not stealing from the non-Jew. I mean, at least in theory, right? Um, so you may want to wait for a half an hour or so after Passover is, is over before you, you know, <clears throat> dig into the whatever it is, cereal or pizza or whatever it is you like. Um, the, um, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> the, um, one other sort of complicating factor here, and it's not really all that complicated, but um, in the course of generations, um, among Ashkenazi Jews, not among Sephardic Jews, uh, there developed a, a, a stringency, a chumrah, um, on Passover that in addition to not eating chametz from the five grains, um, except if it was done under very specific circumstances so that it didn't rise, um, they also did not eat kitniot, uh, legumes is usually the way it's, it's translated. It's beans of various sorts. And there are various theories as to why that custom arose. Um, you know, my guess is that it simply arose and then all of the explanations are after the fact. But um, to the extent that you can justify it, um, my guess is that it's because when you ground uh, beans of various sorts into uh, you know, into, into flour, you couldn't tell the difference between the bean flour as opposed to the wheat flour. And so what they were worried about was that you would ultimately be eating chametz, if, even though you were just eating beans mashed up. Um, so I think that's where the stringency came. Um, in recent decades, uh, there was a, a true, and the Sephardim don't have that, that stringency. So the Sephardim will eat beans and rice on, on Passover without any compunctions whatsoever. In the Ashkenazi world, um, the uh, Rabbi David Golinkin, who is the uh, and, and is in Jerusalem, born born in the United States and 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 trained at the Jewish Hospital Seminary, uh, but then made Aliyah, and he wrote a, a wrote a rabbinic ruling about twenty some years ago, uh, in which he traced the development of this entire uh, stringency, and he ultimately called it a minhag stud, a stupid custom, um, because it really doesn't have much to to, uh, to recommend it. And subsequently, about 10 years ago, uh, the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards of the Conservative Movement um, here in the United States uh, uh, adopted another tshuva, another rabbinic ruling by Rabbi Amy Levin and Rabbi Alvin Reisner, and they came to the same conclusion. 
Um, so um, there are those who uh, will eat, including Ashkenazi Jews, who will eat Kidiyot on Passover, and there are those who will not. Um, and, you know, let me just say that even though I was really convinced by those arguments, um, at least until this year, there are no Kidiyot in our house on Passover. Um, and, and this is something I learned a long time ago, actually. Um, the first year, Marilyn and I have been married 55 years. The first year we were married, uh, I happened to be, I was in rabbinical school, and in the, the two months or so before Passover, we were studying the laws of Passover. And then is now the day after Purim, Marlon starts making Passover. And I started telling her, you don't have to do this. I can show you chapter and verse in the Shulchan Aruch about what you need to do and what you don't need to do. And she said to me, get out of here. I'm, you're not going to trape up my kitchen. And who was her authority? Her mother, of course. Right. So, um, so you need to know that. I mean, so anyway, and, until this year, actually, we had, we did not have Keith Yoda in the house. I think this year, I think Marlon has finally decided it's enough already. Um, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, in any case, at worst, it's a, it's eight days in which you're not eating beans and things like that. Um, but even if you do that, if, if the, the, uh, the derivatives of Kitneo certainly are not forbidden on Passover because that would be a chumrah and a chumrah, stringency on a stringency. And that has no basis in Jewish law. So even if you don't eat peanuts, let's say, although uh, there's a chuvah by Rabbi Benzion Bergman, whom some of you may remember, uh, Shalom, who wrote, uh, well, when, when, uh, when he and I first got onto the law community in the mid-1980s, the very first um, meeting I had was in December of 1984, and they were talking about whether string beans could, were kosher for Passover. Um, and I raised my hand and I said, you know what? My kids couldn't care less about string beans. What they really want to know about is peanut butter and ice cream. Um, so he wrote a chuva called Peanuts from the Ground Up, in which he uh, demonstrated that peanuts were never part of the Keatneyote in Europe. Um, they were an American phenomenon, right? So, um, so you could never include um, peanuts in the in the definition of kidneyo. But even if you did, um, the oil from peanuts would would be kosher for Passover, right? Because that's a derivative from the kidneyo. And in the same sort of a way, corn oil. If you don't, um, and by the way, the corn that we have is not the corn in Europe either. It's really maize, right? It's an American kind of product, but We'll leave that as it is, right? Um, but any of the derivatives, even if you observe the stringency on ketneo, uh, any of the derivatives of ketneo uh, need to, uh, are permissible for Ashkenazi Jews who are doing, who are keeping that stringency. Um, it does, um, I, I want to make um, one other general point, and then we're going to get to some of the specifics. Um, there's, because of the rule that I mentioned to you a moment ago, Namely, that during the rest of the year, unintended um, ingredients in a product that um, that uh, that you don't want there, are, but are void in it if they are a sixtieth or less of the volume of the of the product. Um, that applies to not just the milk and soup. That applies to any product. So, um, if you and so therefore, if you buy things that are clearly not in not uh, chametz, things like milk um, or cottage cheese without flavoring and stuff like that, right? Um, or um, 
uh, or for those of you that have grandchildren that are infants, baby foods of just something like, you know, um, strained apricots or strained peaches or whatever, right? Um, if you do that before Passover, um, then, uh, then it's, but then if anything is in there that you didn't intend, that is Batel Bashishim. That's, you don't need a, the point is that you don't need a hexer for Passover on milk or on cottage cheese or on, um, you know, any, any of the kinds of things that, uh, that you, you would assume do not have, um, wheat, um, you know, oats, barley, smelt, or rye in it. Um, so, uh, that's one thing that, um, you will see in the guide for, uh, for Passover that is in the chat. Uh, so if you look in the chat, uh, Ari, I asked Ari to put it, uh, the, the link there. Um, and you can download the guide for Passover of the rabbinical assembly. And one of the things that they will say there is that if you buy these things before Passover, then you don't need a hexer on them for Passover. Um, that will save you a little money, by the way, and, um, and it will, um, you know, and, and, and frankly, it's, it's well within the laws of Passover to do that. Um, there are some things uh, that if you're going to buy them during Kalmawait on Passover that you do need, uh, a hexer for, uh, and for that, and some things that you need a hexer for no matter when you buy them. So, um, so matzah, of course, you need a hexer for Passover, um, any kind of cakes or, uh, candies or things like that. Um, you need to have a hexer for Passover on. Um, and because that, because of those kinds of things, you know, you, 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 you expect that there may be, uh, some of these ingredients in it. Certainly there are Passover cereals. Um, and if you're, you know, if you, uh, I, if you love those kinds, you know, you not have to have cereal in the morning. I'm, I'm one of those people, but I don't eat Passover cereals because they just, they're disgusting. Anyway, the, um, um, so I mean, I switched to cottage cheese and matzah in the morning uh, during Passover. But it's a, um, but if you're going to have um, those things that where you would really expect chametz uh, to be in, or kidneyot, if you're observing that, that's that stringency, then those kinds of things you really do need a hexer for Passover on. Um, and in that guide, you're going to see more detail than you ever wanted to know about. Um, you know, about all of this. Um, one last thing, um, pots and pans and dishes and all of that. Um, <clears throat> now it really depends upon, um, you know, the family. Uh, there are, there are some families that have a completely separate set of dishes, some, some both milchic and fleshic dishes for Passover, um, and a completely separate set of pots and, pots and pans from Passover. Um, and if that is your custom, then that's what will happen, right? You'll put away, <clears throat> usually like the day before Passover, you'll put away the, 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 the yearly pots, pans, and dishes that you use and bring out the ones that you use only for Passover. If you don't have that, um, then the, um, the question is, how do you kosher these things from Passover? Um, and, Again, in the guide that's in the chat, you will see the exact instructions. But by and large, <coughs> sorry, um, the general rule is, uh, as, as a pot or pan or dish would, would, um, would consume or would, uh, would cake in any kind of, uh, food product. 
so it would expel it. So the, the measuring process depends upon how porous the particular plate or pot or pan is. Um, so in re- if you're talking about, um, start with the easy things. If you're talking about glasses that you use only for cold drinks, um, then those kinds of things, all you need to do is wash them. Um, if you want to be really strict, wash them in your dishwasher, right, to make sure that there's really nothing there that came from the sponge or something like that, okay? Um, similarly, if you have glass dishes um, or dishes that are as in, as um, uh, that, that have the same lack of porosity as glass, um, and that, of course, leads to all kinds of questions about what is in Corningware and what is in all of these other kinds of things that we now have, Right. Um, if you and you can see that in the guide, there there are certain kinds of, of, of materials that uh, that are uh, that are as imports as glass uh, is. And then you can then just wash them How, for metal things. And that's most of your pots and pans. And um, for metal things, what you need to do is boil, boil water in um, in them and let it the biggest one you have. Put, put all your pots and pans and your, your silverware in the largest pot you have and fill it with water and, and, and boil and let it, and fill it with, fill it with boiling water and let it spill over a little bit. It gets a little messy. Uh, and put all of your pots and pans and, and, um, and silverware in that because I'm assuming that they are all metal. Um, and as long as they're all metal, that will work. Uh, if you have wooden handles on them, that gets more complicated. Um, the, um, and then for your oven, there are some people who actually use a blowtorch for their oven. Um, I don't think you really need to do that. All you have to do is, uh, first of all, clean out your oven. And if you have a self-cleaning oven, you know, use that, um, you know, that facility. Um, and then after you've done that, um, just if you have a self-cleaning oven, that's probably all you need to do, frankly. Um, if you don't have a self-cleaning oven, then just clean it out as well as you can and then um, raise it to the highest temperature it goes to and let it be there for, say, half an hour and then let it uh, let it cool down and then maybe wash it out one more time just to be on the safe side and, and you're done. Um, and what you've done is that's, by the way, that's the same thing that you would do during the year if you were changing a Fleischig oven to a Milchig oven or something like that, right? Uh, or changing a um, Fleischig pot to a milking pot or the other way around. Or if something, you know, you made a mistake and it was a milk soup in this Fleischig pot uh, that you had and you want to recosture it as Fleischig, that's the way you would do it, um, you know, with boiling water. Um, there are, um, uh, in terms of counters, um, there are certain kinds of counters uh, that all you need to do that are not porous and therefore all you need to do is wash them. So, when we remodeled our house, we got Caesar stone um, from Israel, which specifically comes with a letter from a rabbi that this is non-porous, and therefore on Passover, all you have to do is wash it, right? Um, not so clear with uh, other kinds of ceramics. I mean, other kinds of, uh, or, or a wooden top, in which case what you would have to do is cover it so that the, that what's on, so that the, where the food is and, and, even where your dishes are, are on top of the cover as opposed to, you know, as opposed to where, uh, the normal, co- where the normal tabletop is. 
Um, so again, that's all covered in that guide. Um, and you can see exactly which tabletops are, uh, we know to be non-porous and therefore, uh, all you have to do is wash them and which ones you need, um, you need to do more for in order to capture it. Um, and, um, okay. I think I've covered what I wanted to cover because I want to hear from your, I want to hear your questions. Um, so please tell me, just unmute yourself and we're a small enough group. Just unmute yourself and if you have particular questions, I'm happy to answer them. Go ahead. Yes. Um, Rabbi, every year during Passover, we cover our countertops. They are granite. So I'm not sure if I'm overdoing the, the, you know, the isolating the comments or. Um, you may be. Let me double check here. Um, I have a copy of the Passover guide in front of me. I just printed it out. Um, and, um, you know, and see the thing is, let me just say, this comes from the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards of the Conservative Movement. And we have a subcommittee on Kashrut, um, now chaired by Rabbi Aaron Alexander, whom you may remember, because uh, he was at Beth Am for a number of years. Um, and um, the, um, so let me see what he says here. Work surfaces. Um, tables, closets, and counters should be thoroughly cleaned and covered for Passover. The covers can be contact paper, regular paper, foil, or cloth that does not contain chametz, um, that is being starched with chametz. Note that the covering material should be made of material that is not easily torn. Many countertops can be kashered simply by thorough cleaning. A 24-hour wait. Oh, I mentioned, I forgot to mention that. After you clean it, you're supposed to wait for 24 hours to make sure that, you know, that you didn't miss anything. And then, uh, so you let it just lie for 24 hours, and then you can use it for Passover. Um, and Eroy, boiling water over it. Uh, to have uh, the effect of recasturing, the service must have no hairline cracks, nicks, or scratches that can be seen with the naked eye. So um, plastic luminates, limestone, soapstone, granite, marble, glass, corian, theron, Caesar stone, swan stone, sorrel, and ebonite surfaces can be cashered simply by Eroy, that is by boiling, boiling water over them. And then you don't have to um, cover it. Unless there's a seam or a... Uh, that's right. Know, unless there's a seam or some, or some crack in them. Yeah, that's right. But if there's no crack in them, then you just need to you know, wash them and then pour boiling water over them and then wait for 24 hours and you're done. Okay? Thank you. Wood Thank without you. scratches is also coshered that way. If you, if you have a wooden tabletop that has no scratches in it whatsoever, you can pour boiling water over it, assuming that that's not going to ruin your tabletop. Right, so you have to decide, you know, you have to take that into account as well. Ceramic, cement, or porcelain countertops cannot be koshered by Hirui, and those are the ones that you have to cover. Okay? Um, so, um, can, if you have a granite tabletop, then all you, you don't have to cover it anymore. You just have to pour boiling water over it and then wait for 24 hours and you're, you're, uh, you're into, you're into Passover with your tabletop. Okay. Good. Any other questions? Yes, please. Nancy. I'd like to go back to the, you're talking about oil, the derivatives. So does that mean there's oil that you can't use or are most oils okay? Most oils are okay. Um, you know, certainly olive oil is because olives themselves are not, uh, and not even kidney oil, let alone chamates, right? Um, 
Um, but, um, you know, uh, and peanut oil is definitely okay because of Rabbi, Rabbi Bergman pointed out that, that even for those who uh, don't eat kidney on Shabbat, I mean, on Passover, um, peanuts were not in Europe and therefore were not part of kidney oil. So peanut oil would be fine. Um, but even corn oil or something, even things that are really kidney oil, um, or soybean oil or something like that, right? Um, even that stuff, um, is frankly fine. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. Others. It's not, it's not all or nothing. So if you think of things, you know, in the next month that you want to ask me, just email me and I'll be happy to try to answer them for you. Yes. Go ahead. Okay. I wanted to ask a question. I see in the stores, you know, whole wheat matzah that's kosher for Passover and uh, spelled matzah and other grains. And it is with the Passover um, items. And I know some people for digestive issues may need it, but how about the general population, you know, would they be able to eat a whole wheat pasta matzah that says kosher for Passover? Or? Yeah, I mean it's um the, the one that that uh, some of some not all the one that some uh, Orthodox rabbis do not like to use for the seder or something like that is is egg matzah uh, because there what you're doing is uh, you're adding ingredients to the you know, to what is supposed to be lechem only. It's supposed to be a poor person's bread. Mm-hmm. So if it's a poor person's bread, presumably the person would not have eggs to add to the wheat and water, right? Um, but any any kind of just plain matzah made out of, you name it, you know, any of these five grains, including spelt or rye or wheat or or some people are, are, are you know, are gluten allergic, right? And mm-hmm. Um, and so for them, wheat is terrible. Um, but oats are okay. So if they can find oat matzo, that's all right. And what, and the reason why it's okay is because it is baked in a, in a particular way to guarantee that it doesn't rise. So it has to be baked at a very high temperature and without leavening, um, and, and taken out of the oven within, I think it's 18 minutes or something like that. Um, it's a, so that's, that's what makes matzo kosher for Passover, even though if you had leavening on it, that would be chametz. That would be mm-hmm. the the classical definition of what chametz is. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Right. And there are, um, by the way, there uh, there are also a number of issues for vegetarians. Um, right. In terms of like the Passover seder, do you have to have a shank bone on your Passover plate? Um, can you have something else um, to to symbolize the ancient Passover, uh, the Paschal Lamb, right? The, uh, the, the Passover Seder and uh, the Passover Sacrifice. Um, and people have become very, uh, what shall I say, innovative, uh, about that, right? And, um, and there are, and you can see a lot of this, and some of it will be in the Passover guide, but, um, you can also see a lot of this in, if you just go online, um, Passover for Vegans or something, right? And, and see what, um, some of the accommodations are that uh, vegans and or vegetarians uh, have made. Now, again, it's it's going to be different for vegans than it is for vegetarians and different, again, for vegetarians than it is for pescatarians, those who will also eat fish. 
um, and different again from carnivores, right? From people who will eat meat um, uh, under the prostitutes, under the, uh, the restrictions of kashrut. Um, but uh, you can, because there are far more vegans and vegetarians now than there were even, say, 20, 30 years ago, including Rabbi Klickfeld, as you heard on his Passover, say, Passover sermon, I mean, his uh, Yom Kippur sermon, right? Um, I'm sure there will be, you know, if you have any questions, if you're a vegan and you have any questions about, you know, what do I do instead of the the, the, the shank bone or whatever, um, I'm sure I'll be happy to answer them for you. Um, I myself am a veggie, but my wife is not, so what, what can I tell you? <laughs> okay. Um, the... Um, um, okay, did I answer? I'm trying to, yes, did I answer your question? Yeah, okay, good. All right, other questions? Rabbi? Yeah. It's kind of a different kind of question. I hear what you're saying about kidney oat. I get it. It makes sense. Home in the pandemic will make life easier. Um, but I'm now an orphan, you know, when the last parent died, actually, I'm still in the year. Mm. And when which is why I was a little late. I was at Minion St. Kaddish anyway. Right. And, but when I think, when I think about what I remember my parents doing, reading ingredients, and this was in the age of corn syrup, so everything was there, there's this feeling of kiburava aim that anyway, just, I'm, I'm just interested if you have a comment on the hierarchy of mitzvot, and in this case, this is what my parents did, and it somehow feels, and maybe it's just because it's in the year, and the parent that died was my mother, who, of course, had more to do in the kitchen. Um, yeah. And I'd just be interested if you have any comments on that one. Well, that is, um, uh, before you came on, I um, I mentioned the fact that when I was in rabbinical school my first year, um, we were studying the laws of Passover in the two months before Passover, and when my wife started making it, I told her that she didn't have to do certain things because in the Shulchan Aruch it says this. And she she chased me out of her kitchen and said she's not going to trade it up, that her mother's going to be the uh, the authority here, right? So that, and it is really, in a lot of families, that has gone from one generation, certain practices, one generation to the next. Um, and that, I think, depends very much upon um, the degree to which you, uh, the, the degree to which, which that's meaningful to you. So, I mean, um, my mother... Um, you know, filled the bathtub with water and put the glasses in the, in the bathtub, um, for 24 hours and then drained the bathtub and filled it again and, uh, for another 24 hours and yet again a third time. Well, first of all, we have a drought in Southern, Southern California. So you should not do that custom. Okay. I mean, that has to come into, into account as well. Um, but the, um, but certainly a lot of the other customs that my parents passed down to me, um, we do. And of course, a marriage is always uh, a bringing together of two worlds. So some of the customs that we do are from my, from Marilyn's family. Uh, and some are the things that just developed on our own. Um, uh, the Seder that, that Marilyn and I have had over, over, well, 55 years, um, is really rather different from the Seder that was, that either my father-in-law led or my father led. Um, it's much more interactive and it's much more, questioning and all of that they they tended to just read through the, the Haggadah and that was that whereas I love an argument so we you know we get involved in you know I have a PhD in philosophy and uh, a, a philosophy professor of mine in graduate school said 
a philosopher as a five-year-old child who never stopped asking why. That's who I am. And so I love that kind of Socratic method around the Seder table. So, I mean, if you looked at our Seder as opposed to my parents' Seder or my in-law's Seder, it looks somewhat different. It looks a lot different, actually. Um, but the foods were, are not all that different, um, uh, except now because I'm a veggie. There, uh, there are certain things that um, my in-laws in particular, who were really meat eaters, uh, would never think was appropriate for Passover, um, right? Not because it violated any laws. It's just that's not what we eat on Passover. It's custom, right? Um, and different families have very different customs, uh, especially on Passover. Um, if you've ever visited other families, um, you will find out that even people that you're close to, um, they, you will, you don't be surprised if they do certain parts of the Passover Seder differently, differently from the way that you do them. Um, and because Passover is really rich in, um, in different customs, not just between, you know, Ashkenazi communities and Sephardi communities and Persian communities, but even within each of those groups, um, you know, what the northern Polish cities or villages did was different from what the southern Polish you know, cities did, and let alone the Germans and the Romanians and the Hungarians and the Russians and all of that, right? Um, and that was all within the Ashkenazi world. Um, and then, but it's not even in terms of subsets of each of these large, large segments of the Jewish community, but one family to another. And, um, and that's fine. That's really fine. I think it adds to the richness of the, of, of the holiday. And in terms of specific, you know, food patterns, I mean, I think, I think whatever gives you meaning and carrying on, carrying down what your parents did, you should do unless there's some clear objection to it, um, in one way or another, right? Um, maybe they ate a lot of meat and you don't. So then you're going to have to, adjust what they did to what you do. Uh, that's just one example. Did you have something else in mind? No, I, I like that, but it did make me think of, um, uh, I'm lit on both sides. So spices and not sugar and going somewhere and they've got sugar and they're going to fill to fish. And I'm like, uh, how do you even eat this or a sweet kugel? So I know I think I'm yeah. going to go to keeping, keeping the whole checking for corn and whatever but okay that's right i'd like and there, and there are different customs about uh it's called a brachen right uh that is broken up matzah can you uh can you use that to, to make cakes and things like that right some do and some don't right and then and the fear that those who don't and the fear that it will rise even though you're not using yeast if you if, if you're not sticking to uh i think again 18 minutes um then it's not, then it might be, it might be chamez. So there are those who will not use tzabrachan. I think it's called in Yiddish, right? Now there's broken up matzah, uh, and there are those who will. Um, so I mean, it's, um, uh, every generation takes from the previous generation and then does its own thing with that and passes it on to the next generation. So if you're going and visiting, by the way, let me say this. If you're going to visit your adult children's Seder, if they don't do it exactly the way you do, don't criticize them. Okay. That's not, that doesn't make for, you know, friends. That's not a way to win friends and influence people. Um, right. Um, so, I mean, or if you're going to somebody else into a friend's home or something, uh, be prepared for the fact that it is perfectly fine that 
you know, that, that different families have different customs as to how they do the Seder and, um, and, you know, and what kinds of foods they, they, they serve and all of that. Okay. Any other questions? Well, again, um, this, you, you said here, that the yeah. thing, the thing that we're talking about broken matzah, do people call that gabroiks? Yes, I think I got that wrong. Yes. I got the others right. Yes. And there are those who, who use it and those who don't. Okay. Yes. Go ahead. Esther. You have to unmute yourself. There you go. Um, I have a question. You, you said that I, I'm also very interested in sort of traditions and things like that. And you're saying that in different parts of Europe, Jewish community celebrated or maybe read the Haggadah differently, that there were so many different customs and different, I understand maybe from an Ashkenazic family to a Sephardic family, but isn't the Haggadah the Haggadah? Yeah. I mean, until very recently in Jewish, in, in Jewish history, um, there was the Haggadah, the Maxwell Haggadah, some of you may remember, right? Um, yeah, there was the text. Um, and, um, but what I meant was that, you know, in some communities, it was just simply read aloud. Um, and in some communities, there was a lot of discussion about it. Um, and in some communities, they would especially, you know, now we have daylight savings time, which raises a whole other set of questions, right? Um, because at least officially, you're not supposed to start the Seder until it's dark. But um, given daylight savings time a month from now, uh, it won't get dark until about 8.30 or 9. Um, so, the, so then what do you do with either children or older adults who can't stay up until past midnight, right? Um, and so what's going to happen, I mean, you know, uh, Rabbi Clickfield told me that for the second Seder, uh, they're going to do, this is what we've done for many years now in our family as well, um, before sunset, you do as much of Magi as you can, right? And that's the the, telling the story and, and singing some of the songs and things like that, right? And then once the sun has set, you, you literally do the Seder. That is, you, uh, but when you get to Magi, the, 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 the fifth part of the Seder where you tell the story, by that time you've done most of it. So you just do two or three lines of it and then you, then you go to eat, right? Um, but it's a, so you have to, as a matter of fact, there's a, uh, uh, a, a rabbinic ruling that the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards um, approved about this issue by Rabbi Joshua Heller, who's from Atlanta. Um, and, uh, the, the, it's, it's not called this, but it's Seder Shalova Seder, right? Uh, a Seder that's not according to the order, right? And why would you do this? You would do this because of daylight savings time. And because you either have, you know, little kids or you have elderly people who cannot stay up until two in the morning, something like that, right? Um, so you, you need to, you know, adjust in that way as well. Thank you. Sure. Okay, first. Okay. All right. Rabbi, so again, oh, sure, go Rabbi, ahead. Rabbi Kleefeld being the rabbi, I forget what he called it, but the one where you end with Musa, uh, end with Suke to Zimra and start with Musaf. Oh, yeah. Hafoku. That was the, that's right. We had one service like that when we had the musical group. Uh, and there was, yeah, a lot of people visiting us that one Shabbat. Um, in February, I think, if I remember correctly, right? And, and it was, and his point was that, um, just to try it, because a lot of the, a lot of the good melodies for singing the services are for Suge de Zimra. 
Right. But people don't show up for that. Um, right. So for just for the fun of it and really not, not as an example of the, what to do year in and year out. Um, you know, we went, we went out the opposite way. So we started with Adon Alam and then Elenu and then Musaf and then the, then the Haftarah reading and then the Torah reading and then, you know, and then Shacharit. And then the end of it was Pugeta Zimra where we could sing through a lot of it. It was a lot of fun. Right. Um, but again, that was not intended to be uh, a model for the rest of the year. It was just <laughs> for the fun of it. But in some ways, it's very much what I was just talking about is very much like this. Yes, I mean it's it's basically taking the Magid section, which is the longest anyway, in a class, in a, in a traditional seder, uh, and and putting as much of that before the seder as you can, uh, so that by the time sunset happens, uh, you can just simply you can. You can do just very, just a few lines of it and, and then move on to dinner, basically. Yeah. You light the candles before you do the Magid? No, 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 no. And it's the this year, this year, the second day, the first day is Shabbat. And so you're not oh, allowed right. to light candles on Shabbat altogether, right? Uh, you light it before Shabbat, but not on Shabbat. So, That's but right. even, but even if it were not that way, let's say it was Tuesday, Wednesday or something, um, you're, you're not supposed to light candles for the second day before the first day is over. Um, because that, that scene is sunset. Sort of so sunset. Sort of to the first day. The sunset, the second right. day where you light the candles the second time. Yeah. That's right. So you would, you would wait until after sunset and then light the candles and then, and then do the, then do Kiddush and the rest of what comes before Magid, right? And then just a few sentences about Magid and then you move, you move on to the, uh, you know, to the, uh, <coughs> sorry. Matzah, Maror, the Hillel sandwich, and and eating. That's a good, good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah. We Jews are very creative. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So again, my uh, you have my email in the Bethlehem directory, but in case you don't, Edorf, E D O R F F at AJU, that's American Jewish University, at AJU.edu. Edorf, E-D-O-R-F-F, at AJU.edu. Um, so you can either email me or um, my uh, my phone numbers are in the directory. Um, you'll probably find me more often at home than at the office these days because I only teach on Wednesdays and Thursdays. So on the other days of the week, I'm, I'm usually home working on a writing project. So... Um, but feel free to call me. I'll be happy to answer what questions you have. Okay. Thank you so okay. much. Wow. My That's pleasure. Very interesting. Very interesting. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am, Los Angeles, Go to tbala.org.